Hello, everybody, and welcome again to a new episode of Conversation in the Park. Now, episode eight this time. I'm going to bring some of our collaborators or friends of Wine Mobility that we've been discussing with them some of the interesting investment and spark opportunities they have been in the market for the last nine months. So today we are going to bring in James Carter, Jasmine Fates, and Michael Persia, the team that we were talking with on episode four, I believe, of the Conversation in Parts to bring back the conversation of how SPACs are doing at this uh, stage and how the market is receiving it. So first of all, I'm going to be asking to introduce uh, themselves. So Jasmine, if you give us a beautiful introduction. Yes, sure. To see everyone again. So my name is Jasmine. Uh, I I launched a SPAC earlier this year called Levier at the end of March uh, with a focus on mobility uh, in Europe of 271 million. I'm also co-founder of a mobility startup backed up by SoftBank called GoGo Network. And before that, I was an associate partner in New York at McKinsey. Uh, and before that, an investment banker in London a long time ago. Michael? Yeah, so my name is Michael. Um, first of all, thanks, David, for inviting us again. And uh, for Jasmine and James joining me, it feels already like a second episode of Friends. Uh, so <laughs> let's see if we're going to do more. Last time I was still at NAD, uh, a private venture fund and e-mobility. I changed since 1st of September. I'm back to the operative side, um, running currently a commercial vehicle and bus company looking at electric and hydrogen vehicles. And being back in the market, not giving money out, but looking for money. So I changed sides and definitely very open to explore all opportunities and still critically, but open when uh, looking at the spec market. James? David, great to be here. So uh, my name is James Carter. I'm principal consultant of Vision Mobility. I'm uh, also co-founder of a uh, forum here called uh, Action Events uh, that we look to further electric vehicles here in Canada. And, and my background is uh, with Toyota. I had 20 years uh, at Toyota in a variety of roles in Japan, Australia, and here in Canada. Thanks for having us. So thank you, all of you, to actually be back on the podcast. As I said, as Michael said, it looked like we are we are keep going to keep talking every six months to see how the market is going. So. Basically, what do you guys think? I mean, for one of the, we talked on April 2021, I think, and that was kind of like the, it was a little bit of a boom of SPACs on 2020, right? And there were actually a lot of interesting things happening at the time in mobility and in automotive as well, with the ship shortage and all the different areas as well. So what do you guys think is the current situation of the SPACs and how the market changed a little bit? Or do you see the market change a little bit on the SPACs? What is your view on that? So a couple of things have Involved. I think we have seen kind of a polarity of facts that are trading well, very well, and facts that are trading very poorly. So I think before it was kind of a more like a hype and a bubble that where you had all the points cloud together. And now you see that these clusters have dispersed and are like consolidating into two areas. And I would say this has the, um, this is also seen in the redemptions that you see now in deals. You see that some deals have, can have up to 80-90% redemptions, bad deals, and then good deals that have almost no redemptions. So I think there's been like a fatigue of investors in some of the, let's say, uh, zero existing revenue over the moon promises. And you can see in general as well the pipe markets today. And I mean, I am currently in the process of raising one, I mean, starting to raise one. You just look at the institutional investors market, it's a much tougher market than what was like February, March uh, this year. 
But interestingly, there is still a lot of interest from strategic investors when the deal makes sense. So I can speak for long, but I let my colleagues here continue to add to that. But I think, Jasmine, what you say is, I think what we saw is really that investors, as we predicted, got more critical, right? You had the boom, the initial boom, and still in 2020. And then in 20, beginning 2021, we saw still some peak. But I think ever since, I think there has also been a little bit of a disillusionization of, like you said, a cluster of specs which really performed poorly and they went to the peak and they are down at 20, 30% of their initial peak. And then you have ones which are really flat and a couple of them outperformed the market. But I think we saw also that the hype, as we predicted in April, brought a lot of, let's say, a below average quality specs into the market where companies by now running nearly out of money and not even reaching the production state like uh, like Lordstown. Yeah. So I think also a couple of immature business models went to the market based right in the wave of, of, of the spec hype. I think that's where the disillusionization of some investors has happened and now they're screening much more carefully the proposals as they did probably six to nine months ago. I, I totally agree. You know, I think there was too much excitement, as it were, in the market. And it really, as you said, put up some fairly low quality opportunities that shouldn't have got the money that they did. And uh, as you said, Lordstown is a great example of a half-baked business case that really didn't fly once it once it got going. And And even some of the better quality you know, SPACs on the OEM side, for instance, you know, Lucid has been off. And I, I think one of the reasons that, say, Lucid has been off is is just simply it was just overvalued in the SPAC market in the first place. You know, still still a strong company and strong investment, but the, the bubble did did cause a bit too much, perhaps an overvaluation of, of where a lot of these companies were at. But I think what I see, and I think Jasmine, you can confirm that, I think now some of the spec vehicles specifically look more at Europe because probably all the relevant potential spec candidates that have one spec and some of the low quality. While I think there is still in, in Europe a couple of good companies who could for sure go spec and have probably more to offer as a substance than some of the half-baked cases in um, in the US. Look at a company like Remax, for example. Remax has a lot of quality, a lot of substance. And Remax could easily do a spec even with one of the two businesses like Remax Technology because it has a really very strong investor base, it has a strong business model, it has revenues for fortune other companies. And that's a company who has still not gone listing despite having all the substance. So I think there are a couple of really good companies in Europe who, if they go the spec level in the US, they should definitely catch a very interesting valuation against, right. similar like in our case, we would not even consider a European listing because a European listing wouldn't give us the right valuation compared to what you get in the US. And then a spec route could be interesting because you have a strong business case, but you don't want to go Europe because the valuations are not attractive. And then a US spec listing with a part of your story being US relevant could be interesting where I think a couple of European companies are actually worthwhile to go the spec route and having stronger outlooks than maybe some of the not so high quality US listings. Yeah, the question in my mind, Michael, is is why not just IPO? Why should you know re rematch, for example, just go the IPO route? It was, was about similar question I want to ask James. It was like, do you see do you see because basically 
I think it's more prolific in Europe to actually go to the IPO route, right? And it's being actually pushed a conversation for the American market that European companies need to be starting to do IPOs in Europe, right? To actually compete. So how you seeing that? You seeing an increase in IPOs in Europe? You think that it will be any investors that will try to do a SPAC in Europe? Because I think there's, there's a market for, for that in Europe. Jasmine or, or Michael, what do you think about that? Yes, I think at the end of the day, what we want for European companies is to have access to capital, right? And to keep some of the value, ideally, like also in Europe. What's happening is that uh, clearly there's a valuation gap between capital markets. But that's not the only reason why sometimes companies choose to be listed in the U.S. It's just sometimes a faster process. There's also more, you know, confidence from the market and reception on like some of the business model. But I think right now there's a clear trend. And for instance, our CFO, uh, Stefan, uh, that was working before, you know, as CFO of the Bank, is like in contact permanently with like the German government. How do we bring more companies to IPO? Not to say it's SPAC, but SPAC is part of the same wave. How do we allow companies to access capital market faster, simplifying the IP, streamlining the IPO route and allowing also for SPACs to make sense in Europe. And you see across the last, you know, across six or seven countries over the last six months, I think regulation is changing. Like in Amsterdam, they have certain need in the UK, in Spain, they're talking about it. France and Italy were already okay. But what I mean is like, you can see that it's changing a lot. So totally. I'm talking now back from a company who needs funding. The strange thing really is, while everybody talks about easing the regulation, when you're actually in the market and you even have an invitation, let's say from JP Morgan Chase, they mm -hmm. want to work with you. The minute you end up at the JP Morgan Chase credit desk at the German brands, you're so deep down in the past history, classical old school banking rules, that it's not funny. So I think good, innovative, hyper growth companies, even with solid business models, need access to capital markets in a very different way than the current majority of the financial markets in Europe are regulated. Yeah. Uh, even venture debt in Europe is still by, is maybe 10% of the availability and the visionary venture debt creditors you have in the US. If you want to have really proper venture debt, you better go to the Silicon Valley Bank rather than trying to convince any European venture debt company to tell them your story because they still somehow are influenced by the more rigid, old-school European banking and venture debt thinking when you go to, 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 to the North American market. So in our case, we are currently have a very strong proposition for a U.S. business case. And that makes me talking to very different financial institutions. And the minute you have a U.S. institution, you talk so much about future. The minute you talk to European institutions, you always talk about past balance sheets, profit and loss, you know, past earnings, equity ratio. You talk to U.S. institutions, it's about growth, it's about future potential, it's about market opportunities, it's about creating unfair advantages. So I think it's the syndrome is, is even bigger than the country regulation. It's the minute you have a banker who becomes a venture capitalist, he still keeps half of his memory on the banking side. And it's so much about discounted cash flow. So I think... For European companies who are really hyper growth, even with very good business models, probably at the end of the day, if they have both options, they will choose a US option, a US spec or US venture capital, because it's just a different level of thinking. Maybe your spec leave aside just mean because exactly. you're more innovative. I agree. 
I agree, and I'm happy to hear that because we are listening on Nasdaq, so that and we are focusing on Europe company, and we believe in these stories. That having talked to like maybe hundreds of them in the last five months, I would say there are still, but not the majority, but maybe twenty percent. So it's not nothing still that still are a little bit like you know, but how much you know? There's a fear of being more irrelevant in a big market like the Nasdaq, for instance, because if you're not in the top X, so. There are also some things of like uh, when the management team is like has more this banker old school mentality, then you get to like, oh, we'd rather list in the European stock exchange, right? But I agree that actually it's not the majority at all of the founders we, we've spoken with in the management team. I think that's also, but I think the founders who make their roadshows and get exposed to the US and get more in-depth talks with the US yes. will just find it more enlightening we have a strategic partnership with Bala Power from Canada. And even talking to them about strategic partnership outlooks and maybe some joint project investments, it's so much more easy than talking to companies like Bosch or the traditional ones. You know, it's more long-term thinking, opening up a market. Money is something very easy to talk about to put joint activities, projects together because we see the window of opportunity. And then they, they even open to play, talk to you know, you are players because they know they need the rubber boats to be fast. You do the same discussion with Bosch or some of the German tier ones about strategic partnership, opening markets, maybe joint project investments, SPDs, whatever. It's just painful. It's a question for me. Is you think that this is what I mean? Talking about about Euro, is just only the culture, or is just the level of liquidity in the market that he needs to be happening to creating that boost? of more companies coming into IPO in Europe? Is just the culture or is just investment as well? If you ask me, having also worked at an OEM level, it is how the CEOs are rewarded for taking risks against being not penalized by not having taken a risk. A US, US, North American, Anglo-Saxon CEO is incentivized to take certain risks because he has share options and the capital market growth of his company is as important as the organic business, sometimes too important, but they have a good balance between taking risks and growing markets fast. The traditional European companies, partially bankers, are rewarded for taking low risks, but also not doing failures. I think we discussed that in the first episode. Venture capital and specs are rewarding people who take risks and they penalize those who took too much risk but don't deliver. But first, they give you the opportunity. The door is open. The Europeans are thinking, let's go through too many failures, so I'm, I'm safe. And I think that is a, a much bigger culture than just the financial market culture. I don't disagree with you. Do you see any transformation with in Europe and any and any level in automotive industry? Is there some change that is happening in some of the German OEMs, right? In, in Volkswagen, you mentioned Bosch. Bosch need is a monster. To change Bosch, you need taking a long time. But do you see any transformation in, in, in these large corporations with Estelantis, with some of the changes they're having, with Volkswagen, with some of the changes they're having, creating separate units that actually motivate some of the executives to work in different ways? Is, is anything that you, on that note, to change or transform in the industry a little bit? Because we need that. We need that in Europe as well, right? So is, do you see any hints of that, Michael? I would first talk, talk to Jasmine. I think you talk to a lot of CEOs, maybe spinning off business or entering in, JVs, have you seen a change of mindset or is it still dominantly the same? Or has the spec hype 
created some aspiration or fantasies. I would say it's a very good point. We just had a meeting two weeks ago with one of the largest tier one French supplier, without saying any name. And we had the CEO of the whole entity, the CFO, the CTO, the new CEO of the Carval they want to do. They already have list, they have a new name, so on. And they told us we're seeing things now for the first time, different, like, it's like it was a statement that they were all there to see, you know, us as back and say we are thinking different differently because if we continue in the same way, we cannot compete with our product because the world has changed, right? And it was a very old school CEO that was like, we're learning what it means to be aspirational. And he was, you know, laughing about it, but realizing that like, if he doesn't do it, like he will never be able to value his assets right now. And he said, it's the total change and shift of mindset. So again, I think it's changing. It will change slowly and some CEO will be more ready to push this change than other. But for sure, they, there is a trend toward this change. So you think we're reaching a kind of a tipping point that corporate thinking at least consciously is aware of a change. And now the next step is to really execute, right? Yeah, it's execute. And that this wave of change that some CEOs have started internalizing goes to the rest of them, right? Because you always have the first movers that leads the pack. I think we're going to have a couple of them uh, in the coming months that will, I think, announce that they are going through SPACs. And then hopefully, but hopefully this will also allow them to think differently about their assets, right? This would be different SPAC route, but like Carvat, giving freedom and letting things grow more like as entrepreneurial businesses than like as, you know, asphyxiated product that they keep in their portfolio cash drain. So it's a kind of, if you can't beat them, you have to join them, right? Totally. Like the, the CEO was saying, we have been the leader in this sensor market for like six years. But right now, if we don't do a SPAC, we cannot compete because there have been like so many SPACs doing the same, you know. So I think at the end of the day, if the, you're smart and you see the world changing, you need to see what you need to change to adapt, right? So that's this transition that's going through. Here's a question for you. We're seeing institutional investors have a lot more focus on ESG mandates and, and perhaps even more of a mandate towards, you know, future technology investments, you know, from larger companies. The question for Jasmine, do, do you think that really, you know, top level investment that or investors that traditionally invest in, in larger mature companies, do you think that's having an influence on the way that they need to move and the way that they view perhaps a, a you know a company that's backed you know towards you know is is this sort of mandate hurrying more traditional companies up yeah i mean so i think state pension funds for instance i was having a conversation yesterday with one investor that was telling me state pension funds of one century are looking for investing now in venture capital like for instance um, mobility venture capital early stage bc like so clearly, this is something that we wouldn't have thought when you're raising a fund like, oh, actually, the state pension fund of these states is actually going to put a hundred million tickets. And this is something that is happening right now, right? So I think there is clearly a switch toward that. And uh, and I think it's it's healthy. Like, you know, they are diversifying a little bit uh, the risk investing in tech and the growth, and it will foster more growth. Of course, they will have to have this balance to ensure like return and so on, and they cannot be too aggressive on, on the risk. But yes, I think this is definitely a trend. Regarding like uh, how it influences SPACs, I don't know. 
because I don't know how much uh, pension funds have invested in SPACs. I, I should ask my book runner. I don't know if, Michael, you know that or David, but that's a good question. Answering to the first part of your question, I think the mandate for different players to be more exposed to ESG-related assets and companies for sure will make the market more liquid if you have either an ESG-related technology or an ESG-related business model. I think we know, I know, for example, that, that companies like JP Morgan Chase have put aside an amount you cannot even imagine, 2.5, I think, trillion over the next 10 years. So they have to invest 250 billion a year, not only own money, but also manage assets into ESG-related investments and assets um, because they are at the bottom of the scale of the ESG rating of financial institutions. So, of course, that creates a huge liquidity pool of accessible financial resources. Now, the question is, how do you get there as a player and access that capital for either your company, for your venture capital um, portfolio, or for your spec listing? So I think there is, a, especially I'm looking also at the hydrogen, I think hydrogen is the new electric in some areas. I know, James, you wouldn't fully agree, but... For some applications, there's no alternative like heavy long long distance shipping. You need green ammonia or something to replace heavy oil. So I think there is capital and there are market opportunities. But I don't think that they're already seamlessly connected because the capital really cannot always understand the business models and the business model does not always find the right way how to access the capital. So there's an intermediate market, whether it's specs, VCs, PEs, or funds. And I think the translation mechanism don't work yet seamlessly. What is really ESG? How do you really influence mm. ESG? How do you really influence a carbon footprint? Yeah, I mean, if I have a diesel truck and a bioelectric truck, it's an easy translation. And I think you can immediately translate it into an ESG impact. But not each business model is that easy to translate. But I fully agree that there might be also companies like you saw the latest activist investor in Shell said he right. wants to split Shell. There's the Shell, Shell old business, which is refineries and drilling, and there's the new technology. And we saw that heavily in the past in the, in the German energy company who split up the coal business and electric and wind and solar. So I believe, yes, it will happen. There will be a lot of things which will happen over the next 12, 24, 36 months. But I think the integration and translation process of capital to business models and forming them together and then creating the value, I think that mechanism is not ready. Nobody has cracked the code, I think, entirely. We see it with the green hydrogen industry. There is something happening, especially the purchase of green energy. So Startcraft from Norway, for example, is buying wind farms and solar parks because green energy in the future is the new, is the new goal. You need green energy for either trucks, hydrogen, or whatever. And that's for sure an interesting market. And there the translation, I think, will happen fast. Because that's a very good mechanism to translate to ESG, ESG rating, cost of capital, and share price. And I strongly believe that bringing CO2 down, bringing ESG up, bringing cost of capital down, and bringing share price up is a very logic process. And I think CEOs start understanding that. So, so actually, that's a, a question... Michael and, and, and Yasmin too, I'm, I'm keen to hear what you are thinking. Like, is there a more of a room for intermediary type firms? And obviously we've seen intermediary firms for a long time, but it, it almost seems from what you're saying that this intermediary part needs to 
be get better at gather the information together to gather what the real opportunities are and understand what they are and then be able to connect the VC with the company and make it happen. Because, you know, what I, I can I can see is that in some ways they're not talking well to each other. So what are your thoughts? I think it will depend on the venture fund, right? You have uh, that in-house and you have people that know well the industries. I don't think you need those type of services. I think if not, and you're just like, uh, then maybe you should, for specific, I think you will need maybe experts on very specific technical or very specific technical sector that, yeah, there is a room for having kind of those intermediaries. But I don't know if as an entrepreneur, I would feel super comfortable to speak with someone and refer me to someone and then accept the money with someone else understand my business. So I can see a VC working with like um, bringing together in the same team in-house or as a subcontractor but in the deal together but I don't see that in this very like like chain reactions except if and this has been always happening when you have like you know found teams that say okay I have a I know this guy is raising fund and I know you guys will be a perfect let me introduce you and that's it and then I'm out but this is not a new thing so that's yeah. that's my... Jasmine I don't I would com- uh, compliment what you say I wouldn't contest it but I think what what James what for sure is there is You need translators, translators who understand yeah. the pain point of CEOs and of investment fund managers who have a mandate to generate green assets and ESG investments and yeah. the technology and the business model and say, look, if you are Mr. XYZ, CEO of a company and you have on your MSCI ESG rating, you are a score below 30 or even worse. How do you get green? What really influences your business model to to become a sustainable investment in BlackRock, having you on their shopping list and not dropping you out. And I think the CEOs have such complex business models, supply chain, tier one, tier two, you you have maybe third-party suppliers you don't control, that there might need to be companies, and it's not the clear trays or true footprints or plan A's of this world, they just do the rating. It's the people who really understand you need to do A, B, C, D, And then your ESG rating will scale, change by six, seven, eight points. And that takes you from orange to maybe light green. And then you're back on the shopping list of BlackRock, Fidelity, or whatsoever. And I think not, CFOs don't have that skill set yet. Most of them I met. CEOs for sure not, because it's not their core business till yesterday. And the pitching companies normally cannot not necessarily really show already the impact of their technology or business model on the overall company of the investing company until unless they understood one speaks English, one speaks Chinese, I speak both and I translate. And I think that's that's a skill set, I think, which will be very relevant in months to come. So James, if you want to exp- expand your business model for sure, where is it, there's a niche in the market. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you mentioned now a lot of the ESG, but well, you think that it's a, a key factor now of the decision for investors to actually go for companies? Every time I'm speaking with an investor or a company, actually, not even just investor, the ESG point now is highlighted. I think people have interiorized that this is uh, not only a nice to have, but actually it makes sense that you can also actually make money with it. With us, if you invest in electric vehicle, for instance, or thing, like, you know, they're like actually like things you can do ESG wise that now we're just more like, oh, I have to do it. No, actually, like it can become a profitable industry. And that's great because you want business to have the incentives aligned to continue to do that. And not it's like when you do charity, instead of just giving money, just try to create a business in the country that 
actually help the country move for themselves. I think if ESG managed to be self-sufficient, then we are, we are victorious because then it can become a really a real mm. industry. So for sure, I see it much more and for sure, I see it continue to grow. Yeah, I mean, just mean, imagine you can put a formula together and say, look, the basic business model of that company is X. It gives you a certain return. It has certain risk factors. But if you apply that technology in your core business and you make your core business greener and accelerate, oh, you get much more ESG points. Yeah. And that brings your cost of capital down on your share price further totally. up. You totally. have a second return of invest. Totally. So there are two things on this. One is also like the time to return that people have to look at that from a you know sometimes different range of time but that still makes sense and second like there are a lot of companies like for instance there's a company in Spain in the US called Clarity AI and what they do is that they really rank all the different like industries and companies with um you know with a note on like ESG and then th this is used by the fund investors so like you won't like it's still like nascent because there's it's very hard task to do because all the industry are different how you compare an airline with a shoe company with this and that but it's happening and then every company will have that as one of their variables it's not just like their cash or their like business plan it will be also their like rating on ESG and that will define their access to capital for instance price and all of this so totally agree and that will I think drive a lot of liquidity in the market imagine the 420 billion green deal which was given by the European Commission that's a seed funding for technology to take that technology to the next level and then tease investors to invest on that basis. So I think the Green Deal helps a lot of the green technology companies. Of course, it incentivizes also some companies to do greenwashing. But I think the Green Deal, also the pricing on CO2, I mean, don't underestimate the pricing of CO2 will go up. In Norway, one ton of CO2 costs already 700 euro, which wow. is humongous. The, the diesel pricing will go up, the ESG ratings, so the entire supply chain industry currently became a CEO topic where it used to be, you know, somewhere in purchasing before, logistics costs were, you know, an unrelevant topic for a CEO even to think about it. Today, the impact for a company like Amazon on their supply chain, which is 90x percent of their first rate rating, is actually supply chain. It's container ships, it's trucks. It's delivery vans, it's parcel services. So I think the whole supply chain industry, which has a huge impact on CO2 footprint of companies, actually got into the focus of the CO level and said, look, how do I make my supply chain greener? Because this impacts a large part of my ESG rating. Porsche, 90% of the CO2 footprint is outside the factory boundaries. Yeah? So 90%. So can you imagine that Oli Blume, who wants to be green, a zero emission company by 2025, 90% of his ESG CO2 footprint is outside his factory gate. It's trucks, it ships, it's tier one suppliers, tier two suppliers. So I think that will facilitate the acceleration of companies involved in that meta space. So, uh, yes, yes, to go with it, do you think as well that you need to, the recent things that are happening in the automotive industry, you mentioned actually, Michael, a couple of those, a couple of them, the ESG impact that they're going to have in the automotive industry, the problem of transportation as well, and some of the large vehicles, the increasing demand of materials as well. We, we've seen that, I call it the perfect storm now, right? The supply chains problem with the chipsets. Do you guys think that this is stopping the development of some of the companies? Do you think that this have any effect on the... SPACs that are occurring there in automotive or actually in the new companies that want to come to the market because it's literally a fight for actually getting raw material now. That's a good question, David. I, I think 
what that supply chain problem will do will be delay the potential of those SPAC companies. And, and we'll take OEM, for example. Uh, it'll, it'll delay those SPAC companies to deliver revenue, basically because they can't get the parts that they need. And it's really going to be on investors to see how patient they are with their returns. I mean, and, and perhaps those investors might might say, well, you know, it, it's happening industry-wide and therefore I'm going to have patience with this company. But, you know, maybe they, they might pull their money and put it in another sector. So I think the question in my mind is, you know, how much patience will investors have for supply chain issues, particularly with OEM and Tier 1 right now? That that would be my question. What are your thoughts, Michael? Well, I, I totally agree. And I think that, that the good thing is, we see a lot of accelerators in different parts of our industry. In supply chain automotive, it's ESG, it's the move to new technology, it's move to autonomous. The leaders, <coughs> I think just mean on your shopping list, you will always see who has which kind of USPs, sustainable USPs or unfair competitive advantages, especially on riding on the wave on, on these mega trends. Then we have the dinosaurs, which are too slow. So they need to get targets. Normally, the targets are not de detected by them, by snapped up by financial institutions because they're just ahead of the curve doing the research. And I think the acceleration which is happening now brings companies to the point and say, I want to be part of it. It does mean, as you described, I want to be ahead. But if I want to be ahead, I need capital. Because otherwise, it's, it's not about the biggest anymore, it's the fastest. And the fastest to adapt and take new opportunities. And I think all these changes and disruptions create the need for capital. And the companies who are going to win, whether it's OEMs, whether it's spin-offs, whether it's carve-outs, or whether it's startups, are the ones who are the fastest to understand not only what they have as a technology or as a disrupting capability or USP, but who is also the fastest who build the new financial models to get access to the capital, to get access to talent, to get access to markets, and then really get ahead of the game. Like Mobile Eye, you know, great startup down there in Israel. They found Intel, and then Intel gave them the capital, and then Mobile Eye became like one of the top leaders in the sensors business. So I think that race is new because most CEOs don't understand that race. Especially in the tech company, the CEO is a good guy to understand his technology, but does he also understand how to incentivize capital markets to look at him? I mean, Martin, for example, Martin Rimas is a great tech guy, but he's also able to play the music to the capital market and, and make them excited. Then you have guys who can make the capital market excited, but didn't under, no, re, under understand really to deliver the promise because they're yeah. overpromised. They get kind of slapped by the market after they, they caught the candy and then they try to do a hit and run away. So I think that it, it actually does mean, I think it requires a new breed of management yeah. because it's it's a new skill set which you not, not necessarily learn at Harvard or Insert how to play that game. Yeah, no, totally. I think it's what we're saying. If the environment is changing, are you able to change? Or if you're not, then we have to change you, right? That's kind of the story. And when you look at all those startups in Europe, for instance, that are all trying to do the same thing, let's say like five companies are, one, are doing like, I don't know, trucking platform aggregator, one in Spain, one in Germany, one there, one that. They're all more or less thriving in their market and one got a bit more capital is getting the other, but then one person do a SPAC or one get 500 million from SoftBank and that's it, like it, it, it takes the business. So there's also this competition, not only, let's say, at the old world, new world level, but just at the new world level. And I think also what is different from before is that before you could see this competition a bit 
further away from you, right? In the US or in Asia, you hear about it, but now it's over, like it's here happening in Europe right now, and it's gone global. So I think, and we'll see, for instance, for ride hailing, like it's it's just like there's no space for so many players. Like it's just gonna consolidate and it's gonna be who has the deepest pocket to lose some money to acquire the user and to have this network effect. We've seen it with retail, with Amazon, we've seen it with media, we've seen it with advertising. What is a bit scary, to be honest, as a European, is that it's never, almost never at the end a European winner. And we have this challenge now for mobility. And also scary because it becomes like companies that are amazing, like I love all these companies, but they are just like much more powerful than any state almost now. And and who, who controls what? We see, but at the end of the day, the free competition and this access to capital is creating monopolistic industry, which is really against what you were expecting when you were like letting freely some startup create new tech product, right? So, but I think Jasmine, it has also to do that you have a very consolidated capital market in China. So, Chinese players who know and partially backed by state companies, they go global like Alibaba or Tencent and, and the joint ventures they create. And then you have a huge capital market in the US, which is also fairly united. It's basically California and New York. And if you know how to play your game and you access these pockets, you're in. And then you have a very fragmented European market. And you have a European, you don't have a European rule. Macron does everything to push France ventures. Britain push uh, Britain ventures yeah. and the Germans. So everybody gets access to small pockets, but they by far not the same size. You get one hit and run at SoftBank or you got one hit and run with Goldman Sachs. Then the ticket you will get is 50 million, 100 million, 500 million, even in a, in a pre-seed round, in an A round. Here you go yeah. to a venture capitalist in Germany and say, look, I want 50 million. He said, yeah, but in your D round, you know, and now I give you like 3 million, 5 million. Yeah, yeah, and I give you this, and in Spain it's even worse. It's like I give you that, but you have to show me like 70 KPIs that, you know, nobody would even like ask <laughs> in a normal country. But, uh, and you have like amazing entrepreneurs that are just like, okay, I'm just going to either leave the country or, you know. So, but it's changing much faster than what we're thinking. Like uh, I went back from the States in the Europe three years ago, and I'm already amazed at how it's changing the pace, and I think it will continue to accelerate. But I think we should continue to make sure we invest in building some European champions to keep some leadership in some industries here. So, so yes, just to close out, I just want to ask you all of you, which is, the, I mean, we did this six months ago. What do you think is going to be happening in six months from now, right? How do you think things are going to be going? Actually, are we going to be a more European mindset to actually invest in capital in the euro? Do you think that actually will be seeing new spark? Eh? Bet guaranteed. In six months from now, Jasmine has announced to have launched her for respect and the target. I'm sure. I like this. I like this trust in us. Good, good, good. <laughs> okay. No, but I think in six months from now, there should have been a couple of European specs being announced for sure. Also in the mobility space. And I think we will hopefully see more European originated, the European sponsor originated specs. And not just purely US originated specs, but the. And listing in Europe, I think also. Now we're thinking when we. Pre- you know, when we thought first of the spike, like uh, almost a year ago now, it was much more complex to do it in Europe. Now there are some countries that actually we could do it. So the next one, maybe we're thinking maybe it should make sense to do it in Europe. We'll see. But yeah, I think it's going to be easier. I think it's just going to stay as a product, financial product, going to last. You're still going to see this polarity of like uh, outliers that are performing well, some mid and some very bad. But I, 
but I think it's here to stay and I don't think there will be this like frenzy again but I don't think it will like stop or like freeze or the vibe and so on so I think uh, hopefully in six months we have managed to get to a healthy situation this Earlier this year, it was like too uh, much enthusiasm. Now, over the summer, we got like almost a freeze of everything. Now it's starting again. And I hope that in six months, it's just a healthy product in the market. Yeah, I think that's my impression too, Yasmin, is that, you know, we, we had, it was too much of a bubble, you know, early around the start of the year. And now that I guess investors have seen, oh, well, 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 you know, we, we went too hard there. We need to back off. And we also need to make sure that whatever we're investing, whatever we're looking at needs to be sustainable and that they can operationally deliver. And, uh, you know, we saw some companies on the OEM side, new OEMs that come through that the operationally ability to operationally deliver was suspect at very best. So, you know, as you said, let's let's take away some of the, uh, there's going to be a, a view by investors to take away some of the gloss and, and understand really how the business works. That, that's my viewpoint. So thank you very much all to being here with us today. It's been a pleasure as always to, uh, that we can join on the conversation in part. So thanks uh, for our guests and thanks to our listeners and please keep following in conversations in the park. Thank you.